A beloved cruise ship crooner, and later, owner of his local football club, is dead. He was also media mogul and prime minister of Italy. I'm Alex Hochili in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and this podcast is also George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe in the UK. This is BungaCast, the global politics podcast, at the end of the end of history. The end of history is certainly now over, because its towering figure, Silvio Berlusconi, is no more. On the 12th of June, 2023, he joined the big Bunga Bunga party in the sky. He was a man who touched many. He certainly touched us. Silvio Berlusconi was born in Milan on the 29th of September, 1936. He was a cruise ship crooner in his early days, before turning his talents to real estate and then the world of media. He very successfully owned football club AC Milan from 1986 until 2007, taking them from the brink of bankruptcy to the European Cup. Literally overnight, he set up a political party, Forza Italia, the name based on a football chant. He was Prime Minister of Italy four times, the first stint beginning in 1994. Silvio claimed that only Napoleon had done more than he had, but that Silvio was certainly taller. He also made 2,500 court appearances by his own count in 106 trials over 20 years. According to the man himself, I sacrifice myself for everyone. I am the most persecuted in the entire history of the world and the history of man. Here, BungaCast will present an oral history of his life, times, and at least for us, untimely death. My name is Mattia Salvia. I'm a writer, a former editor at Vice Italy and Rolling Stone, and also the founding editor of a magazine called Iconografia. I'm also 20-something, and I live in Milan, uh, where I was born and raised, and uh, I am a fan of AC Milan. And uh, basically my whole life has been in uh, Silvio Berlusconi's shadow and uh, Silvio just died like five minutes ago. Uh, I am uh, really shocked, I must say. Uh, my Twitter is uh, exploding right now. Outside of my window I hear like people honking at the news on their cars and the uh, internet is, is very slow. Basically, I think Italy is now in a state of shock because Silvio was the this gigantic figure. Um, like we all used to imagine this day in the past. Like uh, when I was a teenager, I was a leftist and I, I was living in Silvio's Italy, like in the year of uh, his premierships. And uh, we all often thought about uh, uh, the day of his death with anticipation. I, I know people that used to keep a bottle of Prosecco in the fridge for today. Well, now I think that we are upsetting the fact that uh, he has uh, outlasted himself. He has outlasted himself. And uh, so no more uh, bottle in the fridge for us. Uh, Silvia was uh, basically uh, vindicated by history uh, on some points. Uh, like uh, we used to think about him as the the great evil, the great Satan, but uh, we ended up discovering that what came after him was either equally bad or uh, worse. Like we had a series of technical governments, we had the center-left government that actually basically realized the kind of neoliberal reforms that he wasn't able to do for uh, our opposition. And then we have a far-right government of course. And uh, basically, we started like uh, being somewhat nostalgic for Silvio's days. Uh, 
And I think also that we started to rehabilitate him because uh, we saw uh, his political greatness, his political genius, because he anticipated some trends, like he anticipated the populist trends uh, that uh, swept Italy and uh, the whole West in the, in the last 10 years. Uh, the Five Star Movement uh, was anticipated by the kind of uh, political attitude, uh, personalized uh, attitude in politics that uh, Silvio introduced. And uh, uh, obviously also Donald Trump, when Donald Trump was elected in the United States, people were looking at Italy for like uh, uh, lessons learned uh, for our experience with Silvio and how that experience could help them understand the Trump presidency. So uh, at the same time, Silvio was becoming older and older and uh, he, he tried to capitalize on our nostalgia for his time. So he started posing with puppies. He started acting like uh, an old sage. And uh, we call this thing uh, Berlus cuteness. He, he had this strategy uh, to basically look cute an old, cute politician, uh, and he used this strategy to try to get elected at, as president of the republic. But then that, that, that failed with uh, the second election of Sergio Mattarella, the current uh, president of the republic. And uh, Berlusconi basically faded out a bit. He had no more a political battle to fight. I think that his legacy is very controversial because... Uh, on one hand, is responsible for the slow degeneration of Italian politics into a shit show with his uh, trash TV shows, his media set, uh, and um, and all all that. But uh, at the same time, uh, his death today is uh, it's quite sad because it's like seeing the death of another Italy, an Italy that uh, is gone, uh, is is already gone, and uh, the feeling is like. Uh, we are discovering today that the Italy where we were raised into uh, no longer exists. And uh, we are discovering it seeing Berlusconi is dying. Well, I was, uh, I was uh, 16 when uh, my, um, the Italian football team won the, um, the World Cup. And um, I think that this is uh, this, a momentous moment, like an imp- a very important moment. And... Uh, uh, the only the only thing similar the only day similar to to today is uh, is that day today the italian internet is broken the italian society is uh, astonished and uh, i just post uh, the news of of silvius death uh, quoting a famous poem by alessandro manzoni um, about uh, the death of uh, uh, napoleone bonaparte uh, which started with a fu, he was, and describes uh, the feeling that we are uh, living through today. He was, he is no more. We always fantasized about today, but also we thought that today will never come. Hello everyone, my name is uh, Alice Valeria Oliveri and I'm an Italian journalist and author and I'm currently working on my first novel uh, which is about Silvio Berlusconi and his cultural legacy in our country. Um, So if I have to think about a personal feeling about Berlusconi, I will start by saying that 
since I was born in 1992, I am the perfect target for his cultural hegemony. I have experienced the presence of Berlusconi in our political context. And when I was uh, a teenager, I used to take part to strikes and manifestations against him and his government. Uh, but when I got home, I turned on my TV and watched Madison. I think this is very interesting and u- unique somehow, because on one side, we had this public enemy of my generation. Uh, and on the other side, the most funny, catchy owner of a place where we were actually uh, building our identities was the same person. So Italia Uno, uh, which was uh, his um, young TV channel, was the place where we, where we used to watch American TV shows such as teen dramas or comedy shows that shaped our sense of humor, the way we, sp- we spoke, and then all the jokes we made were taken from his TV shows. So he created a collective imaginary from northern Italy to the deep south. And since I was born and raised in Sicily, this was very, very curious because I shared the same jokes and references as a kid born in Veneto or in Sardinia. That was the very first time in Italy that something like that happened in a way so huge and overwhelming. You might understand that uh, beside politics, this was really interesting because just like the American cultural hegemony, you couldn't just say no. As a, as a teenager, it was very hard to say no to those kind of um, entertainment and just like you wouldn't say no to Elvis Presley even though you would say no to George W. Bush you couldn't just say no to Mediaset even though you would like hate Berlusconi so I think that eventually uh, we were all victims and at the same time partners in this huge cultural reset that started in the 80s and is it is still alive somehow because the impact of Mediaset on the public discourse and on the shaping of a collective dream of welfare, popularity and fun is beyond, beyond measure. So we can all hate and despise Silvio Berlusconi as a politician, but we'll never take his cultural legacy out of our country and I might even say out of our bones as a generation. And I think that's the very impact of Silvio Berlusconi on my generation and on the future, because we still have a way of thinking that comes from, stems from that very way of making television and communication. And it's still very alive. Nadia Urbinati, Italian political theorist and professor at Columbia University. The death of Silvio Berlusconi didn't come suddenly or unexpectedly. Uh, The last two months he was very sick. He was almost frozen in his long agony, uh, like all dictators in the time of the Soviet Union, you know. But finally, this morning, the sad news 
Okay. Now, Berlusconi changed the uh, way in which uh, politics uh, and the conception of democracy and the practice of political organization of uh, uh, opinion has been uh, practiced and conceived. Compared with uh, the way in which Italy was after uh, starting with uh, the new democracy after World War II until uh, the beginning of the 90s, compared to that kind of Italy, the Italy of Berlusconi was completely different. Different because first, the disappearance of parties and not because of him, but because of the system of corruption that was uh, uh, discovered and uh, uh, repressed by uh, uh, by uh, the justice system mm, through the penal code, which brought all the parties down. And Berlusconi does came to to the Italians to tell them that he would start uh, a new party uh, and he would liberate Italy from uh, the social democratic or even the communist myth of a state uh, intervention in society for the distribution of uh, services and goods. So he started this uh, new revolution, which he called in this way, liberating Italy from the domination of, of the states and from the domination of parties. He claimed to be totally outside of the party system, uh, which he, uh, he accused of partitocracy, that is the power of parties. In effect, he was um, very close friends of important party leaders, the socialist parties and democratic Christian parties. But since he was a tycoon and not a political leader himself, he could present himself as total virgin of party life. And in this way, he was able to conquer uh, the Italian opinion uh, immediately. So he changed dramatically the way in which politics was uh, practiced because thanks to the use of his televisions, three national television system, plus the influence over the national television system, three national television systems, he was able to influence deeply the way in which people thought in terms of private life, public life and politics. So that from 1994 onwards, we um, experience what is very well known now as an audience democracy, a democracy constructed by media and by aesthetically imaginary over the leaders and his uh, life. So uh, politics became a business like any other kind of business without any ethical implication or that a way of living uh, or presenting politics as the the way in which uh, should be in a liberal society in which we go to buy and to sell what we need. So this was Berlusconi. We can say uh, clearly that he changed the way in which politics is conceived, democracy is practiced. And in this sense, he was the leader of a revolution. Using Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci's uh, famous line, we may say that he was the leader of a passive revolution. That is a revolution that reinstalled a new uh, you know kind of leadership without emancipating uh, citizens in fact becoming making citizens even more dependent on the power of those who rule
This is Carlo Invernizia Setti from the City College of New York. Most of the commentary since his death seems to have focused on the way in which he marked an epochal transition, uh, the transition to a new historical phase, which we can call the now. So Berlusconi is the beginning of the now. Uh, and there are many ways in which that is true. Of course, Berlusconi was first in many things that still resonate today. He was uh, the first business magnate to assume a key role in politics. Uh, he was one of the first to understand the importance of the media spectacle and how it trumps substance in today's politics. He's also one of the first to understand the power of breaking norms and uh, setting up a conflict with uh, institutions and the judicial system in particular. So in all these ways, it is, of course, true that Berlusconi is the beginning of the now. There couldn't be a Trump. There couldn't be a Bolsonaro. There, there couldn't even be a Boris Johnson, I think, uh, without Berlusconi. However, I think it's also interesting to note that there is an important difference between Berlusconi and all of these figures uh, of the now uh, that I think is worth focusing on to understand the ways in which Berlusconi is also not a present, a figure of the now, but also of a previous historical period, and therefore the way in which we have also moved beyond the phase of which Berlusconi was an exponent and an embodiment. And I think this, this difference emerges if we focus on the level of the emotions that governed both Berlusconi's behavior itself and the support, the massive support that he was able to obtain and the political drive that he was able to mobilize. What is the emotion of Berlusconism? I think two. The first is hope and the second is enjoyment. Berlusconi was a hopeful politician. He came announcing the liberal revolution. And of course, it, it was fun. Berlusconi was fun. Berlusconi told jokes. Berlusconi famously enjoyed sex. Uh, this is very different from today. If you think of a figure like Trump, the operative emotions here are not hope and enjoyment, but I would say anger and resentment. Berlusconi smiles. Trump doesn't smile. Trump is angry. Trump maybe tells jokes, but they are nasty jokes. So we are, it's a very different kind of emotional appeal in which we are today, with, where the operative emotions are not hope and enjoyment, but anger and resentment. And I think this gets to the historical mood or epoch in which we are in right now, because in a way, Berlusconi was very much a figure of the end of history. Berlusconi came after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the traditional party systems in the West, uh, and uh, embodied that optimism, that hope of that time. Uh, I think this, this concept uh, is, was well expressed recently by Paolo Gerbaudo when he said that Berlusconi was neoliberalism with B Silvio characteristics. Berlusconi was neoliberal, was a liberal, was <coughs> optimistic, and had his own characteristics. And in, in that sense, he was a figure of the end of history. Today, as you at BungaCast have, I think, very well pointed out, we are past the end of history. We are past the end of the end of history. And the operative emotions today are very different. The debate is not about neoliberalism, but about the return of fascism. Uh, whether we agree or not uh, that we are having uh, a return of fascism, that's a debate that's happening in Italy with Meloni, in the United States with Trump. And this is a reflection of the different kinds of emotions we are living today, which are both on the left and on the right, it seems to me, emotions primarily of resentment, anger, and disappointment with the fact that the promise of Berlusconi, of the end of history, wasn't fulfilled. Is this to say that I 
uh, long for Berlusconi's or miss Berlusconi. Of course, not at all. Berlusconi was terrible uh, for Italian and world history, I think. But sadly, what came after was perhaps even worse. Paolo Gerbaldo, author of The Digital Party and The Great Recoil, Marie Curie Fellow at Scuola Normale and Reader in Digital Politics at King's College London. Berlusconi has been a pioneer of politics and political culture, not only in Italy but internationally, because he's a character that has not only exploited a given common sense, namely the neoliberal common sense, extreme individualism, hedonism, his illusion about political institutions, but he has actively constructed that culture in Italy. As a cultural entrepreneur, as a media magnate, as the owner of three TV channels, Berlusconi created the new Italian under the banner of his new Italian miracle through TV shows that already in the 80s, many Italians saw and expressed some new desires that were not channeled through the existing institutions, both of the left, trade unions, the Communist Party, and of the paternalist conservative center-right of Christian democracy, which were both in different ways incarnating a sort of collectivism, a sort of solidaristic culture. Berlusconi's offer was very different. He appealed to Italians' unconfessed desires, to uh, obviously sexual desires, desire for money, desire for property, desire for, for success. And he managed to build these desires into the narrative of better Italy, a richer Italy, a more prosperous Italy. Obviously, in practice, his political programs miserably failed miserably failed, but it would be impossible to understand Italian politics now, nor international politics, without Berlusconi's seminal contribution. I mean, which is not just political again, but I would say even mostly cultural, having reshaped the common sense, having reshaped the norms of public debate, celebrating not just individualism, but illegalism, like breaking the law as a sort of demonstration of uh, uh, of sincerity, of uh, being a politician who is not afraid to, uh, to admit that he is in fact a corrupt politician, right? is a sort of weaponizing of hypocrisy, which I think is central to the culture of the contemporary right, not only in Italy, but also in the US with Donald Trump or in Brazil with Bolsonaro all leaders that much like Berlusconi and following Berlusconi's example have managed to present themselves as more authentic characters precisely because their wrongdoings are so apparent that ultimately it is almost as if they are more transparent than the average politician and the liberal or the leftist politician who is instead presented as a moralizer as someone who preaches, but in reality just does the same things of the politicians that they cry, or at least they would really like to do. 
the same things. Yeah, is this very weird, this very peculiar, I think, like psychological complicity that Berlusconi has built with a significant section of the Italian population, I mean, a middle class entrepreneurial section, but also with sections of the popular classes, which revolves precisely around ultimately the suspicion of institutions, the suspicions of the law, not as neutral mechanisms, but as mechanisms that are part of a balance of power, right? So in a way, his reasoning is a criticism of institutions, partly uh, it partly has an element of truth to it, but which is used to fuel a simple kind of political cynicism for cynicism's sake. Meloni in Italy is basically Berlusconism you know, in another shape, and much of contemporary politics is very much the politics created, invented, introduced, and kind of popularized by Silvio Berlusconi. Italian journalist and author of Reclaiming the State and the COVID Consensus, Thomas Fazzi. So I think if we look back on the 15-year-long reign of Berlusconi, one can conclude that there's only one thing that's worse than Berlusconismo, and that's anti-Berlusconismo, i.e. the way in which the left gradually and then almost exclusively uh, came to define itself in Italy uh, in opposition to Berlusconi, that is, as anti-Berlusconismo. And um, I think this this is probably, you know, in terms of emancipatory uh, politics in Italy, I think, and in terms of democracy, uh, I think this is probably the most toxic legacy of Berlusconi because uh, what it has meant is that left-wing forces in Italy by focusing obsessively on Berlusconi as the main threat, uh, if not the only threat, to Italian democracy as the source of essentially all of Italy's problems, um, I think they um, they ended up um, uh, ignoring the just as bad, if not more serious, I would say, structural threats to democracy that have severely weakened the Italian democratic system over the past 20 years and more to a greater degree than what Berlusconi has done, I would argue. And I'm talking about the gradual erosion of sovereignty at the hands of the European Union and the Euro, the growing power of the technocratic apparatuses within the state, such as the Bank of Italy and the Presidency of the Republic, the undermining of Italy's strategic interests by its supposed allies, um, as we saw in the NATO-led attack on Libya in 2011. The left in Italy has not only largely ignored these trends, even worse so, it has often actually embraced them against Berlusconi. Uh, that is to say that they have embraced these external constraints um, as a way of sidestepping the actual democratic political struggle against Berlusconi, which they knew they could not win. 
and so they increasingly started looking to the external constraints of the euro of the european union um <clears throat> as uh, as something positive as something that would uh constrain what was uh, in their view the negative uh, influence of of berlusconi and i think there's a you know the, the the most symbolic event was when berlusconi was effectively removed in 2011 um by what i think can only be described as a monetary coup that is there was a deliberate action a deliberate intervention by the european central bank and this has been admitted even by eu leaders and italian politicians over the years an intervention which had the explicit aim of raising interest rates uh, precipitating a financial crisis in italy and forcing berlusconi um, to resign and you know one would think that the the idea of a central bank conspiring to bring down an elected government as much as one may dislike that government would be a cause for worry and instead what did we see in 2011 the left coming down in the streets and cheering this event cheering singing chanting in the streets celebrating um the departure of berlusconi and his resignation but in effect celebrating a technical coup um and i think this exemplified how short-sighted and myopic anti-berlusconismo always was i think it became even more evident in the subsequent years where we've seen you know one politician after another that has essentially acted as a mere implementer of foreign diktats and so i would say italy is much worse off than it was at the time of berlusconi and this is the paradox berlusconi for all his faults did pursue his idea at least of of the national interest and did try to assert an independence for the country and that's ultimately why the euro-atlantic establishment brought him down we know berlusconi pursued a quite an assertive uh, foreign policy we know about his uh, strong relationships with people like gaddafi and uh, putin and other people while they may have had great parties and they might you know there might have been an actual friendship behind all this Clearly, Berlusconi was also pursuing the national interest by striking pretty favorable gas and oil deals. You know, Berlusconi's, you know, the fact that he was, I think, the last statesman that we have had in the sense that he was the last politician that did have an idea of national autonomy to a certain degree, which, as we know, is the precondition for the exercise of popular sovereignty. Uh, once you lose that national autonomy which is what has happened effectively since berlusconi's departure uh you you effectively lose the ability to exercise democracy and so today italy has essentially turned into a protectorate if not a colony to a much much greater degree than it was at the time um, of berlusconi and um this is the ultimate paradox you know i mean berlusconi was attacked for being a threat to democracy for two decades but in fact it was his departure that really opened the door to italy's post-democratic post-political turn berlusconismo was bad but anti-berlusconismo ultimately is probably his most toxic legacy
I'm Pierpaolo Tamburelli, I'm an architect in Milan and I'm a professor of design theory at the Vienna Technical University. The first time I think I heard the name Berlusconi uh, was mid-80s, might have been 86, uh, when Berlusconi bought AC Milan. And I think the person who informed me about these was the the barber at the at the little village where I, I used to live at the time, and, and the barber was the most uh, hardcore AC Milan fan of the village, and he was incredibly optimistic when this Berlusconi bought the team, uh, which, by the way, was in very bad state. The AC Milan had been in the second division, went bankrupt a couple of times, so although it was a prestigious team, uh, it wasn't really doing great. And uh, and the barber told me, I think it was, uh, con Berlusconi e Donadoni vinceremo la Coppa dei Campioni, uh, which uh, uh, referred to a player uh, called Donadoni that at the time was very young and actually became one of the uh, building blocks of uh, great AC Milan uh, of the 90s. And... Yeah, well, actually, both the Barber and Berlusconi were right. Those bastards uh, went on winning uh, five um, Champions League and, and they, they went on winning uh, fundamentally out of the blue from, from a club that was really not good at the time. And I mentioned this because I think that played a role in the legend of Silvio Berlusconi. In, in the sense that uh, uh, the other business was um, the real estate, the television, um, wasn't so spectacular in the sense that AC Milan was really, really bad and was turned into really, really good at crazy speed. And I would also dare to say that I would be relatively positive about Silvio Berlusconi if he could have done the same thing with Italy. So, you know, who cares about morality? Who cares uh, even about redistribution, but great economical prosperity. Uh, but actually that wasn't the case. The data, the evidence on, on the Silvio Berlusconi era uh, in Italy, Silvio Berlusconi and all the other uh, people who have been running this country for these last 30 years is incredibly bad. It's so bad even if you compare it with similar Western European countries which also had their troubles in this period. As a real estate entrepreneur, Silvio Berlusconi is uh, actually quite banal, which is actually also what happens in the case of Silvio Berlusconi as a TV entrepreneur. So there's no new idea, uh, it's, it's just about selling. And, and that's what Silvio Berlusconi has been uh, all in all, a incredible seller, uh, but not at all an entrepreneur in the Schumpeterian um, meaning. So Silvio uh, was great at selling and his uh, architectural projects are really unremarkable for, for someone who, who has been building so much, uh, there's nothing that, that really stands out. 
even the maybe the most famous initiative, the gated community called Milano Due, uh, near Milan in a place called Segrate, where there's also a sort of mythological place called Palazzo dei Cini, literally the Palace of the Swans. These places are anyhow uh, very, very uh, unremarkable. And, and for someone who has been through his entire life so bold and so ambitious, I, I think it's telling uh, the complete lack of interest for architecture. Uh, Silvio Berlusconi never worked with uh, important architect. He never manifested his ambition by means of architecture. And this, I think, is because architecture unavoidably employs uh, at least a part of a public ambition in, in the sense of an ambition that is not only of the owner, of the individual who does it, but also uh, recognizes from the beginning a uh, shared sphere. And also because architecture, exactly because of this, always involve a project. So a uh, an idea that is first stated and then uh, developed and then eventually realized, which is something that never ever interested uh, Berlusconi, who, who was just about selling, selling whatever we, without any preference for a particular option, which in a strange way uh, rendered it even sort of harmless in uh, in political terms, uh, because he, he just wanted to be the prime minister. But actually, what he really fancied was to become president of the Republic, this purely representative role in which you simply go and kiss babies and, and, and you're liked by the people and the people like you. In the end, I think Silvio Berlusconi was more than anything else a symptom, a symptom of the collapse of a, of a previous uh, type of society in Italy that, that collapsed together with the collapse of Soviet Union and of a certain international equilibrium and at a certain moment comes this brutal act of realism uh, about our society, which, you know, we don't care anymore for church. We don't care anymore for party. What we want to see is just big boobs and cash. And, uh, and that was Silvio Berlusconi. And the thing that I think is interesting is that a politician from the previous era was a very sophisticated politician like Bettino Craxi could completely underestimate this and, and, and think that he could control this shift in language, shift in aesthetic and use Silvio Berlusconi for his political uh, design. And he was completely eaten up uh, by that. It might be cynically enjoyable, uh, the nihilism of what he brought, but in the end, this gigantic act of nivellierung nakunten, so leveling to the bottom, maybe, didn't help Italy at all. And it's funny only up to a certain point. Well, those were some lovely contributions. Guys, what do you think? 
Sad times. Sad times. I mean, stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone. The uh, our evil patron saint is um, is dead. R.I.P. Rest in power, Silvio. Um, I think it's probably worth revisiting some of the reasons why he is this figure that we think is is so significant. This kind of insider outsider we think you know we, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast and we talk about it in the book but this idea that he is uh you know he, he to a large extent set the template that i wouldn't say lesser figures but certainly subsequent figures like trump of this kind of media mogul um this guy who's kind of giving a, a, a wink to the audience while he's uh, kind of breaking all the rules he's giving us the license to to break the rules at the, at the same time um, and certainly changed, you know, changed um, Italian politics and set the the mold for a, a certain way of doing politics that was, you know, very influential. So not to say that we're all kind of, uh, you know, I'm not sure how many of us, if any, have uh, tattoos of Berlusconi on, on our, on our bodies, but certainly a, a historic moment with his, with his passing. We should definitely get tattoos of Berlusconi now that he's dead. I think that's a great suggestion. And we encourage all our listeners to get tattoos of Berlusconi as well. That's how we will recognize each other um, without having to, you know, actually communicate. So, Well, those, that's where the Patreon funds are going, if you're wondering. <laughs> subscriber. And if you're not a subscriber, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash bungacast. We'd love to have you. But more seriously. Yeah. I mean, he's he's a quintessential end of history figure. And so his death is, in a sense, the end, you know, well, not in a sense, I mean, it is the end of the end of history. Uh, Coming to power in 1994, at the end of the so-called Italian First Republic, which saw the collapse of the Cold War era party systems of left and right. And he transcended both of those with this kind of joke party with a joke slogan, you know, and became, and like George said, kind of would inaugurate this new era of plutocratic populism that, you know, lasts with us today. And some of the, um, you know, some of the contributors have already mentioned some of the similarities and differences between um, later figures and Berlusconi. You know, uh, Carlo, for instance, mentioned the difference between the effect of Berlusconi had with the cheesy humor and aura of success compared with Donald Trump's kind of glowering scowling and more menacing and brooding kind of effect. And I think all of that is true. I certainly like the Trump before Trump thing. There is already like a cliche of the obituaries. And I think it's worth bearing in mind that that cuts both ways, you know. So when they say, when they talk about Trump before Trump, obviously they mean the kind of the man who uh, became the plutocratic populist and leveraged his, uh, you know, leveraged his wealth into political power. But also the fact that you know, the left and liberals tried to um, attack him through the courts. Um, that also, you know, so like the Trump thing cuts both ways, like I said, right? They tried to tie him up in red tape. That was true, how he accused his critics. And so in that sense, um, you know, because they couldn't beat him at the ballot box, they, you know, uh, I mean, Trump was beaten at the ballot box, but Berlusconi had to be attacked through the through the non-elective means of politics. And this obviously culminated most dramatically in the coup of 2011. And it's worth dwelling on that because it's something which is passed over in silence or is, um, if addressed, it's kind of um, finessed and uh, rendered in politically correct terms, where he was hoisted out of office essentially through a technocratic coup and replaced by Mario Draghi, who was the Governor of the um, Italian Governor of the European Central Bank, and this was so, almost universally celebrated across the Western world as something that was um, part of ordinary functioning within the eurozone. 
um, and indeed is kind of, you know, it's kind of passed over in silence or handled with the utmost kind of delicacy and grace in the various obituaries. And in fact, I think it's crucial. Um, it's, you know, it's the only successful coup in Western Europe um, since the end of the Cold War. Um, and, you know, that's a, it's an astonishing fact and maybe the most single most important fact about Berlusconi and the one that's consistently overlooked in almost all of the obituaries um, in favor of kind of talking about his charismatic populism and how he turned Italy against itself and his uncanny ability to woo the masses and how easily deceived they are and so on and so on. When, you know, I think the coup is the single most important fact about um, Berlusconi's political career, at least. And that's worth, I think that's worth reminding ourselves of. Absolutely. I mean, just to roll back to the question of corruption, uh, you know, there was, Berlusconi was the object of lock her up, or really lock him up, um, well before Hillary Clinton. And now, as we're looking forward to yet another US election, they do come thick and fast, don't they? Um, we, we are witnessing the Democrats practicing lawfare um, against Trump, just as uh, the Trump supporters practiced lawfare or attempted to um, against Hillary Clinton. And I think that sums up the way that um, throughout the whole end of the history period, increasingly politics is pursued through non-political means or through extra-political means, um, basically trying to pursue your political goals through, um, whether it's through the law um, or through, you know, kind of personalistic appeals. And Berlusconi was both the beneficiary of that as well as um, the target of it. And I think those contradictions really sum up the way in which politics gets hollowed out, um, its content gets um, its ideological content or what should be its ideological content um, gets sort of sucked out um, and replaced um, in lieu with um, various other kind of forms of mediatic politics as well as, um, you know, lawfare effectively, uh, the judicialization of politics. There are two other points, I think, which are worth mentioning. So he had that unique ability to derange the left and liberals, which, you know, kind of Trump and other leaders, Bolsonaro, Boris Johnson, and so on, they also have that and you know particular ability to do that and it's worth thinking about um you know why that's the case i think in italy as far you know what seems to me the case in italy the kind of his um his plebeian kind of crudity and the you know the stupid kind of um off-kilter jokes and the casual sexism all of that really deranged the left i think and i think it's to do with the fact that it was part of his mass appeal I think it's part of his mass appeal, like George said, the kind of the wink, the knowing wink at the audience. Um, but also, I think, you know, in the particular context of the Italian left with um, their kind of snooty that, you know, they'd spent decades basically um, substituting cultural hegemony for any effort to take political power. And so, you know, with their kind of snooty outlook, um, seeing themselves as the guardians of Italian kind of highbrow culture, Berlusconi was exactly the kind of figure that would enrage them and um, puncture their pomposity. And he did it very well. And so, you know, I think yeah. that derangement capacity is worth kind of um, thinking on. The other element, which only occurred to me the other day, actually, and it was talking to an Italian colleague, a woman colleague who's um, a refugee from the Italian um, academic system and is very much happy to, you know, happy to stay in Brexit Britain because for all of the supposed um, oppressiveness of Brexit Britain, the Italian academic system is still much worse, according to her. But also she said, like, this, there's a unique kind of sexism 
in Italy, and she put she blamed this was a few days before, this was a few days ago, so well before we got news of um, of Silvio's death. But she said it was this kind. There's a particular kind of sexism which she inaugurated, and you know, I mean that you know anyone who's kind of even vaguely familiar with Italian culture will recognize it in the kind of um, you know the the bimbofication of Italian TV channels and so on. And there were documentaries about this um, also coming out of Italy. But one thing she said, which I hadn't heard before and stayed with me or made me think a bit, was also she said it was part of his appeal to Italian women as well, because he successfully kind of presented a public figure or model for Italian women in the 90s that emancipated them from the suffocating Catholic conservatism of um, the Christian Democrats. And so, you know, the kind of the um, the glamorous, the sexually available um, kind of uh, silicon pumped up, um, well-dressed, you know, high heels, lots of flesh and so on. That image of Italian womanhood that was, you know, pumped through all of his television channels, that was the part of the reason it worked was because it had, you know, emancipated as well, as well as for all of its kind of crudeness. But anyway, the point where I was getting to was to, I wonder if that also particularly annoyed his opponents. You know, so the atmosphere of kind of sleazy sexual glamour that he liked to cultivate, obviously that was part of his appeal to his supporters. And I wonder if that particularly deranged um, incel Italian leftists. It wouldn't surprise me if it did. Yeah, there's, I mean, there is something about his <clears throat> him being impervious to to moral critique, and like this being him being very successful at at having you know the Italian left kind of point out like, oh, this this guy's got a sleazy charisma, but then everyone thinks, oh yeah, but then he's charismatic, or this guy, look at him, he's he's breaking all the rules. Oh, he's a maverick. It's it's basically he he had a very uh, instinctive understanding of the spectacle. And the the role of of like breaking norms because yeah. this this just draws attention uh, to you. And if your opponents are um, foolish enough to to uh, play on that terrain, it just shows that you are you know you're presenting new options and new possibilities. And I guess you know at the end of the day, it, it's not he must have been able to appeal to a wide um, variety of Italian voters, including women, despite his his evident uh, well, in his personal he- life. Um, yeah, well, maybe his he he could have explained it as his uh, great enthusiasm, um, but um, I think <laughs> well, quite quite, famous, quite famously, he was he was the the housewife's favorite. Um, that was you know a kind of core constituency of his. Um, but I think, as you say, you know, he plays kind of across the board, and the he shows the way. And this is something that sorry, is Alex, familiar to sorry, everyone. just sorry, just just to interrupt. You you use the present tense there. You said he plays across the board. I'm, I'm sorry to um, have to um, have to correct you, but it's it's past tense now. It's um, he was I'm just holding back the as, tears uh, here, dude. As Matthias says, he you know he he was, but is no longer. Indeed, um, but he played across the board. Um, but clearly, and something that is very obviously present today is the way that um, certain kind of cultural transgression um, channeled into politics can substitute for um, political transformation. Um, and I think he very much kind of pioneered that through precisely the provocation of um, liberal mores and the reaction from from liberals and the the kind of cycle of politics that that then creates. Um, it does allow you to kind of say, yeah, um, screw you. You know, it's, it's a very um, easy to hand fuck you to the man that you can just adopt in part by voting for, for Berlusconi. And I think the fact that 
so many on the kind of um, kind of liberal establishment never really kind of grasp that. Um, I think tells you a little bit of why mm. Italy has ended up um, in the place it is today with figures who are far to the right um, of Berlusconi. Um, you know, and and so all the media, of course, talks about him uh, blazing the trail as if he just simply opened the door. But I think that was um, a dance which was um, carried out by by certainly by two parties. Yeah, I mean, building on Carlo's point, like maybe that's that's it, right? That the Berlusconi is is happy and Trump is angry. So the the appeal partly is one of kind of in of naughty enjoyment for Berlusconi supporters to the extent that. You know, you know, this is gonna, you know, piss off those annoying leftists. And for Trump supporters, it's more of a fuck you to the to the kind of the establishment Democrats. There is certainly in both cases, you know, not as you said before, Alex. It is a bit of a cliche, you know, that Berlusconi was Trump before Trump. But there is, there is. A, I thought Carlos' point was particularly kind of <clears throat> astute that there is a there is a difference there. And you know, you can't you can't understand Berlusconi unless you understand that there is there was a centrality of enjoyment there the the license to to enjoy some things that maybe you kind of shouldn't be enjoying or you should be a little bit more um reluctant to enjoy and that's you know that is a, a i guess a powerful political emotion the other i mean the point i thought that you know was made by um i think it was Mattia in the comments and is an important one is also you know what came after was worse you know so we always we thought like Berlusconi was terrible, but by the end, you know, towards the end, everyone was already nostalgic for him because what he came after him and in response to him was actually worse. And so I think that's also kind of um, a useful warning, you know, when we have, I mean, at the moment, for instance, there's all these deranged paroxysms over Boris Johnson resigning his seat in Parliament in response to kind of a lawfare assault. Um, and, you know, it's a similar kind of thing. Be careful. I suppose, be careful what you wish for. But that said, I think, you know, there is two things I think we should, um, two things I think that are worth also drawing out on the Trump before Trump line, um, which is he was more neocon than Trump. And I think that's important uh, because, you know, he was importantly, he was an important component of the Anglo-American, the Blair and Bush alliance that went into Iraq in 2003. Perhaps more positively, you know, he was uh, opposed to the NATO bombing of Libya in 2011, famously or infamously buddies with Gaddafi. Um, and so he tried, you know, was unable and unwilling ultimately to stop it, though apparently he tried. And also more recently, he was, um, he's been a thorn in the side of Georgia Maloney, who's been very gung-ho in supporting NATO's proxy war in Ukraine, whereas Berlusconi, who has ties with Vladimir Putin, has been trying to make the case for, you know, peace negotiations of some kind, rather than um, kind of feeding feeding the meat grinder. So I think those, um, you know, those points are worth bearing in mind, um, that if if he inaugurated a new style of populism, it was more belligerent and more in hoc to liberal interventionism in its early phase than it is now, because now it seems to be kind of cleaving more towards being oppositional, at least in the case of Trump and in the case of, say, the AFD. Or um, Orban. Or indeed Orban in Hungary, yeah. So it's not a kind of, it's not a consistent picture, but nonetheless, I think it does indicate a shift in populism with respect to, or the international relations of populism. I, just one thing about, um, I wanted to add about his relationship, I think, to the state and how democracy is perceived. Uh, it's the demoralization of democracy, which allows figures like Berlusconi to flourish, um, in part because he presents himself and presented himself as 
someone who gets things done, who brings his business now to politics. And that circumvention of process is something that has a certain popular appeal, genuinely, at times where it's seen as a lumbering bureaucracy, uh, which takes far too long to get things done, if it ever does. Uh, and the decrepit state of Italian infrastructure, for example, um, only furthers that notion. So the appeal of figures like Berlusconi remains, even pa- pa- certainly post-Berlusconi, um, because it does allow um, these promises to be made that the circumvention of tired old processes, including democratic processes, some which are um, purely legalistic, but some which are genuinely important in the process of um, elections, which can be circumvented in a way um, just to get things done. And then, but of course, the irony to that whole um, configuration is, as Phil was pointing out earlier, is that the circumvention of democracy then ends up happening also in, uh, you know, technocratic ways, not just in populist ways. Yeah, no, I think I think that's an excellent point. Like the 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 people's problem solver Macron, like who who is his precursor, his pre runner? Well, it's really Berlusconi, and it's like, but Berlusconi, the problem, the way that he would problem solve is by cutting the red tape and getting rid of some of these like bureaucratic things, like elections or whatever, rather than the kind of like slide deck approach that you can imagine Macron and his kind of supporters um, enacting. So there is a clear kind of you know, if you want to talk about techno populism, like there is a uh, like its earliest kind of bringing together of that kind of getting things done, understanding of technocracy and the and the populism. That's that's in um, our man Silvio, and also as the CEO, right? I mean, that was a big part of his appeal. He ran companies very successfully. He was an entrepreneur, get up and go. Um, you know, he kind of broke the stranglehold of the state on broadcasting. He could energize Italy and reorganize it very effectively like a businessman instead of the corrupt, um, self-serving bureaucrats and elites who ran the partyocracy. Um, one thing that I think is worth mentioning in terms of the obituaries also is that so it seems to me like effectively it's very important that in criticizing him as the kind of proto-Trumpian figure, they also have to make him carry the can for the Eurozone. And so in all of the obituaries, they point out the fact that he's overseen a terrible period of stagnation in Italian living standards and in the Italian economy. And all of that is true. Um, he certainly has, you know, um, but that is very much consistent with the the vincolo estorno, the external uh, constraint, which is, you know, the very was the Italian name given to it by the architects of the eurozone, um, finding the currency union as a way to tie the hands of, um, of uh, well, the Italian yeah. people ultimately, and so the the constraint of the eurozone, you know, is the single most. I mean, it's been a disaster for Italy, um, but they have to make him carry the can for it, and I think that's important in terms of how they're trying to shift um, blame for the failures of uh, neoliberal euro neoliberalism and the eurozone they put it on him and it's i mean he's responsible for it in as much as he failed to leave the eurozone and he failed to pursue any kind of um anti you know anti european politics consistently he occasionally made noises when in opposition and he criticized obviously um the his ouster but at the end of the day, he was, um, you know, far from willing to to ride that tiger. Well, I mean, I, I don't even know if you can say he failed to because there was no pretense that he ever was, which is part of, I think, the charade. So he, if he made anti-European noises, um, they were really just kind of little noises. 
But as you say, the the vincolo esterno, you know, that sets hard barriers to what politics can do. So for all that, um, I you know, I've already made points about critical points about the way that politics has been fought out by through non political means through the judiciary and so on, and that you know, real politics needs to occur in um, through forthright and open ideological contestation. The the reality is that there the the constraints of the eurozone means that politics does become a little bit of a charade, and it means that you can have figures like Berlusconi claiming to do something and coming in and completely changing the circumstances of that Italy is facing. Where the reality is, there's going to be no genuine possibility of that actually happening, and so it's a game played by all sides of the establishment, and Berlusconi is certainly part of that. Um, all sides of of the kind of legitimate spectrum of politics, even as much as the liberals try to exclude figures like Berlusconi from the legitimate spectrum of politics, they're all part of the same, they're all in the same basket, um, all taking part in a political charade. All right, well, if you'd like to know more, we have a book out called The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century. We've been running this podcast since 2017 on this premise that we are at the end of the period known as the end of history. And the towering figure of that period has been Silvio Berlusconi. So if history came to an end famously in 1989, the quintessential figures of the period just preceding that of the rise of neoliberalism was of course Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. The end of history ends in 2016 with the election of Trump and Brexit. That period from 1989 to 2016 is most exemplified not by figures like Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, but indeed by Silvio Berlusconi. Only he was able to capture both sides of the equation of our age, that is to say both technocracy and populism, being part of the system and against the system, a beneficiary of anti-corruption politics, as well as a highly corrupt figure himself, and many other contradictions which you've already heard about in this podcast and from our guests. If you're interested in more about the book, check out bungacast.com slash book for more information. All right, that's all as we say a final goodbye to our evil patron saint, Silvio Berlusconi. But BungaCast continues. The man may be dead, but the age of Bunga Bunga goes on, and we're here to find out how to get beyond it. Please subscribe to the podcast and join us at patreon.com slash bungacast for much, much more. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Rabat ou Panama, la base ou Ottawa, Islam m'a pas dansé le coup.